Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. Welcome to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. And this is the show that takes a deeper look at the issues in the news today. And we're going to take a wider view of the world of business and politics around us. And coming up on today's show, the US midterms are the first referendum on Joe Biden's administration. They'll also reveal the level of support that Donald Trump-style politics is having still in the Republican Party. So we'll be joined from Washington by Financial Times journalist Lauren Feder. And raging against his own machine, Elon Musk finally takes the helm, the board and the kitchen sink at Twitter. Digital cultural expert Chris Stokel-Walker joins us from London with his take on what's going on behind the scenes at Planet Musk. And finally, Irish forestry industry could provide this government with more significant reductions for our carbon emissions and also provide a lucrative alternative for Irish farmers. Professor Cahill O'Donoghue from Galway University talks to us about his in-depth new study into the economics of Irish afforestation. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at StockNT. So first up today, let's start with that issue and take a look at the potential of Irish forestry. Now, we all know that planting and growing trees is an excellent way to improve the environment. But could it also become a very valuable source of income for Irish farmers? Well, Professor Cahill O'Donoghue from University of Galway is the author of a report called The Economics of Forestation and Management in Ireland. And it shows that it could indeed help not only farming, but also help us to achieve our very ambitious climate goals with some political willpower behind it, at least. Carl, you're very welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. Nice to be on your show. Talk to us a little bit about the report, what it sets out to do. OK, well, it's it's an economic study of forestation in Ireland. And uh, to look forward, if you look back, um, that Ireland has had one of the um, um, biggest changes in, in land cover and forestry since foundation of state. We started with 1% cover and we're now 11%. So that is the biggest land use change in Ireland. Um, the challenge, however, is to reach carbon neutrality, we need to get to 18%. Um, so there's a there's a big gap. And while the, the, the planting programs have been very successful, um, in the last few years, um, the, the, the amount of hectares that have been planted has, has fallen. And so the, the, the challenge is to um, those planting. And um, there are opportunities in terms of the carbon value um, to be able to do that. Now, let us dig into those targets a little bit. Um, where are we at? And you, you mentioned there that there's been a decline in, in the tree planting in Ireland in recent years. Why has that decline actually happened? I guess there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a number of factors. Um, very many farmers have planted um, land with forestry over time and uh, many of the quick wins have been achieved. There also have been issues in, in relation to um, licensing um, which has created uncertainty, created more hassle, more time to, to plant that's put people off. And there's been happen- things happening elsewhere in agriculture, uh, like with um, dairy expansion, um, where there are, there are higher incomes from, from other sources of agriculture. There's, there's a, it's, so it's a complex uh, point. We were here before, back in the, in the 70s, when we joined the EC, um, forestry planting uh, rates uh, slowed down back then. And um, we completely reimagined the way um, we supported uh, forestry, encouraged forestry. That led to a huge increase in, in planting in, in, the, in the 80s and 90s. So we've been able to do it before. So one of the things that the report is recommending is that we, we step back now 
and to rethink um, the, the the way we organize ourselves. So there there are um, issues around the way we organize ourselves, financing, um, incentivizing, and and so on um, that we can we can do to to, to turn around the, the planting. Um, levels that we have in the country. And indeed there have been calls by various people including some politicians that there should be a standalone agency for for forestry. What's your view on that and what do you think the likelihood of something like that happening is? Well it is one of the recommendations uh, organisationally uh, in the report um, to um, um, to improve uh, to improve things it, it, to develop a, a forest development agency um, other natural resource areas whether it be um, agriculture uh, or fisheries have um, uh, development agencies and there's a different culture uh, between um, regulation and oversight mm. and and development there's a different attitude to risk and development agencies are about supporting an industry um, to develop um, and they're, willing, they're more willing to take a chance whereas if you're an oversight agency um, you're more concerned about compliance and making sure things are done right. So there, there is a slightly different perspective. And so there is a merit, I think, uh, and I worked for Chagas, the National Development Agency for Agriculture for a large proportion of my career. I think there is a, a, a merit in, in having an agency, particularly given both the, the challenge and also the, the impact from, from scaling our forestry. Um, because if we don't grow our forestry and we don't sequester the carbon, and that's needed in the trees, we're going to have to, uh, big impacts elsewhere in the economy because we'll have to find those carbon savings elsewhere to reach um, carbon neutrality uh, by 2050. So both on the, the need side that we have to deliver and on the challenge um, to get planting levels back up, I think in doing things differently, we, we need to think about developing a, a development agency. Now, Carl, you mentioned there the licensing regime for forestry, and I saw that Quilcia has called for that to be changed. Can you just give us a sense of how the licensing regime operates now and the positive changes that could be made to make, um, you know, investment in this area easier for farmers? My understanding, I'm not an expert in, in, in the precise area, but my understanding is that there was a high court judgment that uh, increased the requirements to do environmental impact assessments. And one of the concerns is that it's not just once that you, you get you have to do it to plant forestry, but you actually must do it every time you, you make a change, whether it be thinning, harvesting, planting, putting roads down. So there's a lot of individual steps, and that process at the moment takes a lot of time. So um, there, there is a report, another report, the McKinnon report, which was published in the last couple of years, which um, draws on lessons from Scotland that they've gotten a lot of things right in, in, in forestry. And there's some very practical examples there on how we can be more, I guess, more efficient in, 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 uh, in licensing and, and regulation. Um, so there, there, there are, there's a very clear blueprint as to what to do, because just across the water, we, we see another uh, country that, that, that is, is, I guess, is more effective in, in doing that. Um, so what my, my, I have two recommendations in the report. One is to implement um, the detailed recommendations around regulation from the McKinnon report. And secondly, to find a way to have a, a single licensing regime so that you do the impact assessment for each mm. stage of the, the rotation rather than having to go back each time and to do a, a, a go, go to the regula regulatory process at each stage mm. uh, of the forest. Yeah, it's just another industry, I think, that is seeing 
you know, um, the, the the pace of investment and and progress being hampered, I think, by um, regulatory bureaucracy in some instances. And, and that, that's really just what I wanted to pick your brains on there. If you're just tuning in, uh, I'm speaking to Professor Cahal O'Donoghue from University of Galway about afforestation in Ireland. Cahal, just to turn to the other side of this discussion. Where is the, Where are the opportunities and the possibilities? I did mention at the outset that you believe that it could be become a really valuable source of income for Irish farmers. What type of farming could look at this area? Indeed, who's looking at it now? Well, I guess there's, there's two dimensions. One is the, the benefits from forestry and the other is, is, is who are the beneficiaries. Um, there are multiple benefits from forestry. From Traditionally, we think of you grow trees to have timber. And, and actually, in terms of farming, about over half farmers would, would be better off in the long run from having some forestry um, replacing some of their agriculture, given the, the market returns. But the ecosystem services are increasingly um, important in Ireland. Um, we, we put a price on carbon. We see that in, in the carbon tax we pay for in putting fuel in our cars. And the, if you turn that on its head, mm. the price you pay, you pay for emissions is also the value of the carbon that's stored in trees. And that's worth about 40 euro per tonne of carbon at the moment. Under the deeper um, uh, advice, that will go to 265 euro in, in, in 2050. So that will increase sixfold. And when you place that value on the carbon of the trees, and you compare it to the carbon emissions in, in food, it radically changes the economics of, of afforestation because the, 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 the value of the carbon stored in the tree become very valuable. In fact, probably and possibly more valuable than the than the market value of the timber so and then the other dimensions are are the biodiversity elements um, and other ecosystem services which also have very significant value so what we're suggesting is not one forest can can achieve all benefits you you, you need to think of a land use strategy to plan the benefits that you need from the forest um, you need to incentivize it properly and then um, there are great opportunities for landowners and, and, and farmers to, to benefit from that, um, um, be given the, the value inherent in the, far, in the forest and future. The challenge is how do we make that happen and how do we provide the, the incentives? Because the cost benefit analysis to the state is extremely high given the value of, of carbon. The, the challenge is, is, is coming up with a, with a policy framework that can pass those incentives on to, to landowners and farmers. And what's the barrier, Cahal? If it's such a profitable industry, if it holds so much potential, like why aren't more farmers doing it? I think with anybody, a, a change is always difficult. Um, so um, farmers for multiple generations have often farmed the land they're on. They like to farm. They may be a bit worried about converting their land into another land use like forestry. And when you plant trees, it's a permanent commitment. You must replant um, the, the the tree subsequently, so it, it is a, that replanting obligation is a is a worry to farmers and landowners. And I, and I have some recommendations in the report about how you could use the carbon value in a in a in a, in a policy design to maybe to to do away with that co- concern. A lot of our policy at the moment focuses on compensation, mm. compensating for the co- the loss. But actually, if you want somebody to make a substantial change, like moving from agriculture forestry, moving your industry. It needs to be worth your while. So we need to think more about um, the behavior incentives rather than just the compensation. That t- would take a bit of a mindset change. But I think the, the value of the carbon um, 
gives you an opportunity to do that. It gives you the, the financial headroom and also the, the logic in terms of law to, um, to be able to facilitate that. So um, there are very many ways in, in which you can do it and we need to be a bit more creative. Mm. But for that to happen, it needs to be a cross-government perspective because the, um, uh, who owns the rights to the carbon stored in trees is, is not clear. And that would that would require um, multiple departments to have a say and, and for a, a cabinet level decision to enable the, the, the value of those returns to go to, to farms or to landowners. And that's not clear at the moment. And I was just going to ask you about the government's response on this. Where, where do they sit on this uh, at the moment? I must say I've had, I've had very good engagement so far at the senior level in the, the Department of Agriculture um, with, with ministers. I've, I've, I've um, had two presentations with a, a, a joint committee in, uh, um, in the Oireachtas cross-party. Cross there's a lot of interest. There, I think there's a lot of frustration in, in terms of making it happen. It seems obvious what needs to happen, mm. but the how-to bit is hard. In my experience, when, when you have to coordinate a solution across departments, that becomes very challenging. And so it almost needs to go up a level to have that cross-departmental uh, oversight and coordination. And I think for something like as important as this and as complex as this, it, it, it does need that cross-cutting element. So it, I think it needs to move upstairs a little bit because when you talk to the department level, I, I think all of the goals are aligned with department goals, but the, the making it happen is, is, more, is, is, be, is beyond maybe the remit um, or capacity of a single department. Yeah, and this sits within the Department of, of Agriculture, but obviously the Greens, the Green Party are in government at the moment and have a significant um, influence on government policy in general. So it will make perfect sense for this particular issue to be dealt with uh, during their term in office and also to me that that standalone agency for forestry makes perfect sense. Can I just ask you about um, the 70s? You said that we were here before and we rescued the situation from behind. Was there anything that you could look back to then that worked that we could apply now? Um, yes. Uh, so we we had completely different incentive structure in the, in the 70s to the 80s. So they looked at where you could get the forestry and identified farmers. They brought in forestry, forestry premiums and, and grants. They um, changed the, uh, the structure of the industry from the Forest Service. Quilter was established. There's a bunch of regulations. So it was, it was really a, few, a root and branch change the way we organize ourselves, finance ourselves, incentivize. So they, um, there was a report written by Frank Convery, and an S report in 1979, that went through a lot of the, the, the specific elements. And, and those recommendations were implemented. It wasn't just a report on the shelf. I mean, there was um, cross-governmental interest. I think forestry moved department around that time as well. Um, so I think at the moment, we're reaching a stage where we probably reached as much as we can in terms of the scale of ambition in agriculture. There'll always be farms that plant. But my, my sense is that we need more stakeholders involved in planting. There isn't only one solution. And so more entities involved in, in facilitating forestation. It could be National Parks and Wildlife. Um, it could be the Department of Environment, in addition to the Department of Agriculture. So it, it could be a broader perspective. Um, and there's, a whole bunch, there's quite a bit of detail in the report on on. on on, on elements of that. Um, it, my, my aim wasn't to, to give every solution, but more to point um, um, point the direction of change. But I think we did, we were there before and we turned things around before. Um, 
I'm not sure if we have a, a choice but to, to do our best now because the, the, the consequence mm. in terms of reaching carbon neutrality are, are so high. And if it's not done by forestry, it'll have to be done by somebody else. Well, Carl, I did uh, speak to quite a number of people in the sector before doing this piece. I do detect a lot of frustration with trying to get through the system. It is a very interesting report. I hope that you do get the root and branch approach uh, to this that you're looking for. But for now, we'll have to leave it there. That's Professor Cahill O'Donoghue from the University of Galway. Cahill, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks very much. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Coming up next, Elon Musk has said he's not bought Twitter for the money. So why did he buy it? Find out after the break. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Now, last week we saw that Elon Musk finally completed his takeover of Twitter. It was a development that elicited widespread celebration and despair in equal measure. But what does it mean for the social media platform and why should we even care? I'm joined now from London by Chris Stokel-Walker, who's a freelance journalist and communicator specialising in digital culture. Chris, you're very welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Mandy. Now we get in, I've read your piece in, in Wire this week uh, and we'll get into the mechanics of what might happen but I'm very intrigued to ask you a question about why you think he's doing this. Elon Musk has stated that it's not about the money so in your opinion, what motivated him to, to go ahead with this acquisition and take over? Yes, it's difficult to tell Mandy because only Elon Musk really knows that and even then I'm not convinced that Elon Musk knows that day in, day out. I think it switches for him though yeah, we can look at what he said in the last six months before he took over Twitter, um, you know, from when he actually said, I want to do this, to when he actually took it over. And it's worth bearing in mind there was some quite significant ups and downs and times when he literally said, I don't want to take it over. But we know that he was keen to try and turn Twitter back into a free speech platform, a place where regardless of your point of view, you could say whatever you want. And the argument there that some people would make is, you know, Musk is trying to bring back, to re-platform voices that have been silenced, like Donald Trump. And certainly I think we've seen a kind of change in the tone of conversation on Twitter since his takeover that suggests that that's maybe what's going to happen in the future, which is potentially detrimental to those of us who who worry a little bit about hate speech spreading on social media platforms. Mm. It's kind of contradictory, though, because he does say he wants to um, create less censorship on, on the one hand. And then on the other hand, um, a lot of the things he speaks about disliking is this woke culture. He doesn't like regulation. He doesn't like bureaucracy. So you know, where do you think that that will finally land? Or do you think he's literally just making it up as he goes along? I think genuinely he is making it up as he goes along and I think that a lot of people try to um, ascribe the idea to Elon Musk that he is some sort of genius and you know no doubt he has a lot of business success but I think he is much more um, wacky and random than he maybe tries to appear I think that actually a lot of people try and make a pattern and understanding from what he does when there isn't one there. But we we do know, as you say, he he is essentially trying, I think, to to shift this a lot and and bring Twitter from what it once was to what he hopes it will be, at least at this minute. And that is a very 
strange and significant shift and it's one that i think he'll struggle with a little bit mandy because we have you know, we have seen politicians cracking down on social media platforms we know elon musk is not necessarily the favorite person of lots of politicians and thierry breton uh, welcomed Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter, which Musk announced by posting the bird is freed on on Twitter itself by saying, ah, yes, but the bird flies by all rules in Mm. Europe. So that is significant. Yes. So he may not have it all his own way. Um, Musk and Jack Dorsey have a very interesting relationship. And just looking at some quotes uh, of Jack Dorsey last week, and you alluded it in your piece on, on, on Wired, that there's talk of like higher ambitions for Twitter to become a more ubiquitous uh, platform, much more similar to the internet in terms of um, its 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 operational um, side, uh, and also Dorsey suggesting that this is much much bigger for Elon Musk and part of a much longer term plan. What do you make of Dorsey's role and his relationship with with Elon Musk? Yeah, it's it's really fascinating because uh, Dorsey we know from private Twitter Twitter messages and texts that were surfaced as part of the lawsuit. That was one of the background reasons as to why this deal has gone through now. That, you know, Dorsey is saved down in Musk's phone as Jack-Jack, which is quite an endearing little nickname for him. Um, and there are suggestions from both those messages and from speaking to people inside of Twitter that actually, you know, Dorsey is not necessarily unhappy with the fact that Elon Musk has taken over this uh, because, you know, I think Dorsey, from my understanding of speaking to people within Twitter and those who kind of have the ear of him and others, he felt in some way that Twitter lost its way over the last few years. That commercial interest started to dilute uh, what he envisaged the platform should be, and and so I think it's it's kind of fascinating um, to see Musk carrying out this idea that Dorsey had for Twitter, and and this is to kind of turn it into uh, something more significant, something kind of based towards the principles of Web three, um, without getting into mm. too much technical detail, because I know sometimes that can be very very off putting for listeners. Um, you know, Dorsey has this idea of turning. Twitter into essentially what's called a protocol, which is kind of a much more deep infrastructure internet format. So rather than just being a website, Mm. it could potentially sit across lots of other aspects of our digital lives. Whether or not that will actually happen, not so sure. Yeah, it's just surprising that if if, um, Dorsey sees the ambition for Twitter as kind of getting back to that uh, grassroots activism platform that it was in its very early stages, that that Elon Musk would be the one to do it because here we have potentially um, the most influential town square, if you like, digital town square of our time being owned by the world's richest man. It's a very strange juxtaposition, isn't it? It is. And it's it's very, very confusing, right? We, we have to look at this in the round. Twitter is seen um, as a hugely important platform, though it is worth noting actually in the grand scheme of things by user numbers, it's not that significant. But what makes Twitter such a powerful place and I think what's made it, I guess, such a lightning rod for kind of this battle for the future of it and mm. why we're so focused on it is because the people who are on it are, are generally the decision makers. They're not representative of society, unfortunately, but they are journalists, they are lawmakers, Mandy, they are, they're the people who shape 
the conversation and, and the direction of travel for our society. And, and, and so, yeah, the idea that kind of a, a already controversial billionaire who tweets unusual things to his followers and has a kind of cult of personality that is based largely around antagonizing people mm. suddenly taking over this platform it is a concern because it, it kind of it sets the the tone for what musk himself says is the public square and if that's going to be what our future is doesn't look particularly promising or enlightening for me. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and we're talking to Chris Stokel-Walker, who's a freelance journalist and communicator specialising in digital culture about Twitter. Um, one of Musk's first acts was to oust several of the senior figures in Twitter. He lost the CEO, he, he gave up his chief financial officer, the head of legal policy, trust safety, and... Um, you might look at that and say it was a very chaotic start to his tenure, but who is he going to replace all of these people with? Does he have lieutenants or is he intent on kind of operationalizing this himself? Well, we know that he wants to make Twitter a much more streamlined platform. And, um, you know, there were discussions around this last week that suggest that as of Friday, around about 50% of Twitter's workforce will be laid off, um, which is huge and significant and concerning. And in that place, there is either a power vacuum or an awful lot of people that'll be working an awful lot harder. Um, the suggestion is that Musk will try and do a lot of this stuff himself, but you can't run a platform like this. So he does have, as you say, a lot of lieutenants who are there trying to help him. The the concern, I suppose, is that they're often um, equally controversial people. Mm. He has a, a person called Jason Calacanis who um, has kind of previously downplayed um, the idea that, that racism exists um, because he hasn't seen it himself and um, has kind of been relatively uh, upfront about that. Um, David Sachs is also another kind of lieutenant that is believed to be helping Musk out. Um, he's a venture capitalist who uh, <clears throat> has, has previously written an article in the mid 1990s that suggested that you know affirmative action, um, you know, promoting people of of color or ethnic minorities um, in the United States was was maybe a mistake because. It, it kind of compromised the achievements of those people anyway mm. um, and kind of diminished them. And, and you know, I, I've been speaking to people for various stories who are concerned about the fact that Musk has got rid of individuals who were thought to be doing a decent job, mm. by and large. Um, there are arguments over whether Twitter's former CEO, Parag Agrawal, was ever really very good, and that's not just held by Musk. That's a belief by many people. But certainly the head of legal and ethics that you identified was seen as doing a very, very good job by people who would know. Um, and so the fact that he's kind of clearing this out and having a new broom approach to this is worrying because these things are difficult and you do need that knowledge and there's there's not really a suggestion at the minute that he's going to replace them with people who do have that knowledge. Yeah, and on top of that, if he does slash um, the uh, 7,500 strong headcount by either 
75 or 50 percent, depending on who who you read or listen to, it could be exceptionally damaging for the company in terms of the oversight that it has to have and what it's trying to do with the platform by making it um, not susceptible to control or misinformation by external sources. So in one sense, it could be very irresponsible, couldn't it? It could. And, and you know, a perfect example of that in, in microcosm is the fact that, you know, this week Bloomberg has reported that um, the number of Twitter employees who have access to tools that can moderate content on the platform, mm. essentially stop the spread of it or delete it because it's seen as unpalatable or take action against users, has diminished from several hundred having access to that to just 15. Now, the the reason that's been suggested as to why that's happened is because, you know, Twitter is in the, in the midst of kind of a corporate shift. Um, there are concerns about um, potentially disgruntled either ex-employees or soon-to-be ex-employees who may be trying to wreak havoc on that, although there's no real evidence of that. But, it, it you know, the fact that there are only 15 people who theoretically have the ability to step in if something goes wrong here on a platform that has 238 million mon uh, daily monetizable active users is a concern. I don't think that 15 people could necessarily control you know, a crowd of several thousand, never mind several million. No, the figures just don't stack up. And in another way, the, the figures just don't stack up is also um, the amount of debt that he has now acquired in, in you know, m moving on this. And, and I suppose a discussion about why he's done it and why he didn't go ahead with the court case is another day's work. But let's look at one of the ways he's talking about trying to raise revenue in this Operation Blue Tick, which is intriguing. Um, does making people pay for their blue tick undermine that role as a digital public forum by sort of limiting full participation to those who can pay? Um, this could tie in with, I suppose, what many believe are his core beliefs that, you know, billionaires and people who are, you know, in, in society at a certain level are the ones who should be the stewards of capital. But it's not really aligned to the core values of what Twitter was supposed to do. So just just give us your views on what you think about Operation Blue Tick and, and, and will it be successful? Yeah, I'll, I'll take the latter first. No, it won't be successful um, because I don't think enough people necessarily care to mm. part with what is currently $8, was previously $20. If we'd been recording this a couple of days ago, it would have been $20. It's now 8 Theoretically, if we recorded this in a couple of days' time, it could well be $2. Um, Elon Musk seems to be negotiating against himself. He's, he's brought down the price of the subscription in large part because sci-fi author Stephen King said that he wouldn't pay $20. And so Musk, you know, offered him a different cut down price. Um, it, it is concerning for a bunch of different reasons. So number one, Mandy, as you say, there is this idea of you're putting up a gate, a barrier to individuals who could not otherwise afford it. And, you know, um, authentication on Twitter and sort of verification of your identity as someone to be trusted is really significant for many. I'm personally not verified. I was at one point by some sort of... I don't quite know what happened, but um, I, I was and then I wasn't and then I tried again and I couldn't, which is fine. But for many people, it's a kind of it's a you know a stamp in the passport. It, it shows that you you are legitimate and that you have a, a purpose there. And if you make that something you have to pay for, then suddenly you cut off a lot of people who, you know, at a, at a time when you know, the cost of living crisis is hitting worldwide is 
unwilling or unwilling to pay for uh, this sort of thing. There's also a separate concern around this, which is um, there will be some people who are willing to pay for this who are not deserving of verification. People, potentially bad actors, who see this as a way of hoodwinking people. If they can pretend to be someone with authority just because they have to pay $8 a month, they can then use that sort of authority to coerce people into giving them money or giving up their passwords or mm. giving up their bank accounts. And I think you know, this opens up a huge can of worms that haven't necessarily been thought about. Okay. Um, to be honest, I don't like using it as much as I used to, but just let's imagine he brings in Operation Blue Tick and then um, implements a subscriber-based uh, platform. It does give us all instant access to the news for people who work in the media like you and I. It's particularly important. So let's just do a litmus test. If he introduced a subscriber-based platform tomorrow morning uh, at €8 Euro or £8 pounds per month, would you stay? Or could you work without I'd it? I'd have to think about it. Would you work without it? I'd have it? to think about it. I, this is the thing. I, I, do, I do rely quite significantly on it. And... Um, you know, I, I would I would be worried if the the pay barrier was that you can never use it. I'm not particularly bothered if I have to pay eight euros or eight pounds or eight dollars to get a blue tick after my name. That doesn't matter to me. If it's I can't access the site without paying, that becomes really, really significant. Although there is an argument that uh, the longer that Elon Musk kind of you know approaches this through chaos theory and trying to just kind of cause disturbances on Twitter, the less valuable that subscription becomes. I literally just published, as we started this interview, a story for MIT Tech Review that said one third-party company estimates that Twitter lost 875,000 users in the last week or so who deliberately deactivated their account because they'd had enough. So you, you have diminishing returns here, potentially. If, if more people leave Twitter, does it become valuable enough to pay for to stay on? Mm. Well, they say a week is a long time in politics, but it's an, even, it's an aeon in, in the life of Twitter. But for now, we'll have to leave it there. That's Chris Stokel-Walker, freelance journalist and communicator specialising in digital culture. Chris, as always, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Coming up next, US election midterms defeats can upend US presidencies. The main thing that the Democrats have going for them is this dread of what their defeat might mean for the US Republic. So we'll hear from Washington next about what pollsters are predicting for next week's crucial elections. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. And finally today, next week's midterms will be the first major referendum on the Biden era of government. They'll also be an indication of just how much voters want to reinstall the Trump wing of the Republican Party. There were very strong words this week from President Biden about the implications of election deniers potentially in this election. So here to discuss it all, I am joined now by journalist Lauren Fedor of the Financial Times from Washington. Lauren, thank you very much. You're welcome to News Talk. Thank you for having me. Now, as I said there, Lauren, there's lots of commentary about the implications uh, of this election or these elections for the very essence of democracy uh, in in America. Do you think it's hyperbole to to reflect that kind of America and the core of American democracy is at stake in these midterms? Well, you know, it's certainly the message that Joe Biden and the Democrats are really hammering home now with with less than a week to go. Um, you know, it, they are 
they're not pulling their punches. They're being pretty strong in their rhetoric. Um, and while American democracy has certainly faced challenges, big challenges in the past, look, this is a country that fought a civil war in the 19th century. Um, it is also true that there are candidates who are running for office uh, now in the U.S. who both dispute uh, or reject the results of the 2020 presidential election and haven't committed to accepting the results of of next week's elections. And that is that is worrying to people. And it's worrying uh, not only in the short term, but also looking ahead because some of the states, one good example is in Arizona, where the uh, woman Carrie Lake, who is the Republican candidate for governor there, she has, uh, you know, she denies the results of the 2020 election. She's not committed to accepting the results uh, if, of the midterms. Uh, she would be in a position in 2024, the next time there's a presidential election in the U.S., she would be in a position to be certifying, signing off on the results in that state. Uh, and that that's raising a lot of alarm bells, because if she were to become governor and then the Republicans say were to lose that state, uh, what, what would happen? Uh, in a presidential election context, it, it could be a real crisis. Yeah, it's it's unusual, I think, to have so much of the discussion around this being actually about the implications for the next presidential election in 2024. But just to learn for a second, can you take us through what voters will be voting on uh, this week? And also, what are the polls saying just a couple of days out? Sure. So midterm elections happen every, uh, well, they come, they cut the presidential four-year term in half. So Joe Biden was elected two years ago. We have the midterms now. And the real focus here is on Congress. So both chambers of Congress in the U.S., the lower chamber, the House of Representatives, and the upper chamber, the Senate, are up for grabs. Uh, and listeners may remember that the Democrats, Joe Biden's party, they control both chambers right now by very slim margins. Now, the polls suggest that they are likely to lose control of at least one of those chambers, most likely the lower chamber of the House of Representatives. Um, whereas the Senate is definitely more in play, um, people left, right, and center will agree there that it's going to come down to a handful of states, uh, states that are also the key swing states when we talk about presidential elections. So they may sound familiar, places like Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, Nevada. These are states where uh, we'll be keeping an eye on election night and we'll be possibly keeping an eye for several days after, uh, particularly if it takes a while to count mail-in mail -in ballots in those states. Now, there are structural certainties that we always assume for midterms, like the, the sitting administration doesn't do well in midterm elections. Um, as you said, the margins that they hold both houses are very, very slim. Um, is there mm. anything, in your views, is, is there anything likely to book a trend here? Do, do you see any kind of, where do you see maybe the potential for the Democrats doing better than we may, may, may normally think of, of a sitting administration in these elections? Right. So uh, first things first, you're absolutely right to point out that if past is precedent here, the uh incumbent party, the party that controls the White House, tends to do poorly in midterm elections. There are a couple of uh, rare examples in, in the last 25 
30 years of American politics. But generally, that's the trend. Now, Democrats at the start of 2022 had had baked that in. They'd assumed, uh, for better or worse, quietly, maybe not saying it publicly, that, that this was likely to to be the case for them. Now, that said, over the summer, there were mm. several things that happened that that boosted their their optimism. Uh, one of those things was that the U.S. Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade, that that decision that had enshrined the constitutional right to an abortion. Democratic voters and many independent voters were were outraged by that decision, and Democrats thought that this would mobilize their base of support heading into into November, uh, and and polls suggested that that it did to some extent. But it's now seen that that momentum has, as months have drawn on, has has slowed a little bit. Mm. And one of the main questions we're going to be looking at heading into next week is is how much that that abortion issue really has made or will make a difference at the ballot box. Um, you know, there are other kind of factors here. Uh, Donald Trump, someone that is is never far from the conversation, even when he's no longer in the White House. Uh, over the summer, there had again been some kind of thoughts, perhaps in Democratic circles, that some of the revelations from this probe on Capitol Hill into January sixth uh, might reflect badly on Trump, reflect reflect, excuse me, badly on the Republicans, and might hurt them. Uh, again, it seems like that has started to fade into the rearview mirror a bit, and what we're seeing with the polls no matter kind of how the question is framed, where it's asked, is that for voters, the number one issue is is the economy. It's inflation. It's the cost of living in this country, which is on the rise as it is in, in much of Western Europe. Mm. Um, and when it comes to those economic bread and butter issues, uh, the Republicans have the edge. And, and that is why, uh, you know, many people see them having the momentum heading into, into election day. Yeah, and that, that's interesting because... Uh, let's look for a second at how Biden has performed in these elections. Uh, what did the public make of his own economic policies? Um, they've been quite, you know, generous in their assistance to 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 people trying to get through those headwinds. But it seems it's still a very hard sell against those very difficult headwinds of inflation, cost of living crisis, energy push points. But how has he performed? Sure. So you know, Joe Biden obviously was elected uh, with the majority of voters backing him. And, and he had a bit of a honeymoon period in terms of his approval ratings when he first came into office. But we saw his approval ratings take a dip actually more than a year ago now with the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. And they continued to fall for, for several months. Mm. They've recovered slightly. But when it comes to his handling of the economy in particular, voters tend to give him particularly low, uh, low approval ratings. And that that makes it tough, as you say, for for him and for the Democratic Party, these Democratic candidates for Congress to to make their case to voters to say, well, trust us with the economy. Mm. Um, You know, their inflation is a a complicated issue. There's not a magic button that any politician could press and and solve everything. And, you know, nor is there, you know, there's fiscal policy, there's monetary policy, there are global headwinds. And the Democrats try to convey that to to voters, but that's that's a difficult, complicated message. Uh, In the final stretch now, they're trying to lean on the legislative accomplishments that they can point to. And when I say that, what I mean is laws that they've 
that they've passed uh, that they think uh, can make a difference in mm. people's lives. That's a difficult sell in an election to try and point to your legislative achievements. One thing I've noticed is uh, President Obama has been popping up on the trail. Um, he's been more active from the for the Democrats of late. What's he been What's he been up to? Sure. So you know he has. Uh, hit the campaign trail, as you say, in the last week or so, he's been focused largely on these on these Senate seats, these handful of states that I mentioned that could really make the difference in terms of whether or not the Democrats can hold on to that upper chamber of Congress. So he's been rallying with the Democratic candidates in places like Georgia, Nevada, Arizona, um, Pennsylvania. He's going to be in Pennsylvania actually with President Obama this weekend. Oh, sorry. President Obama will be with President Biden in Pennsylvania this weekend. You've got the full the full uh, slate of, of presidents there um, hoping to kind of seal the deal. Uh, President Obama remains for the Democratic electorate, for Democratic voters in America, an extremely popular individual. He may not be popular with Republicans, uh, but among the Democratic base, he is he is a an asset uh, for these candidates as they try to uh, get over the line. Yeah, as you say, throwing everything at it in the final days. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnson. I'm talking to Lauren Fedor from the Financial Times in Washington about the US midterm elections. Lauren, you mentioned there um, Donald Trump, who's ever present now in any discussion about American politics. Um, how influential has his brand remained in these midterm elections? hugely influential. So earlier this year, the Republican Party held these nominating contests called primaries to select their candidates throughout the country. And in many, many cases, we saw that the Donald Trump endorsed candidate was ultimately selected by the grassroots voters uh, to be the Republican candidate. And now those candidates are being put to the test in a general election contest. You know, Trump has a fair amount riding on this. Mm. He he wants his candidates to win. Uh, you know, not only one could argue for the Republican Party to take control, but also for him to be able to turn around and say, look, I'm still relevant. I'm still the kingmaker. I select the winners. And and that's why you should continue to back me, because he hasn't made a secret of the fact that he wants to run for president again. Uh, and he we, we're expecting that he could potentially announce that he's running for president, you know, in a matter of days or weeks after uh, the midterm elections. Yeah, so depending on, you know, the level of support he sees, his type of candidates getting, that would definitely encourage him to declare his hand. America's just so polarised at the moment. How important is it um, to control Congress right now? And if the Republicans did con- take control, um, who who would their speaker be? And what would it mean for things like Joe Biden's legislative path and also things like the January 6th, 6th committee? Okay, so there's a lot there. Um, what I would say is that uh, for if Republicans take control of one or both chambers of Congress, mm. we're going to have what people call divided government here in the U.S., where the one party controls the White House, one party controls Congress, and it means that that things come to a bit of a standstill. It's much harder to get things done. It'll be much harder for Joe Biden to to get anything done on Capitol Hill. 
equally, the Republicans could pass legislation. They could vote in support of different bills or measures. But Joe Biden could ultimately veto those those uh, bills and, and not sign them into law. So we could have a bit of gridlock on our hands. Mm. Uh, that said, certain things could substantively change. So, for example, taking the House of Representatives, where we expect that the Republicans will ultimately take back control, that means that there will be a new Speaker of the House. Uh, that person is likely to be Kevin McCarthy. He's the current leader of the Republican conference um, in the, in the House of Representatives now. Uh, he would be taking the speaker's gavel from, from Nancy Pelosi, the current speaker. Um, and in addition to that, all of the committees that... Uh, are part of what keeps the engine of Congress running would shift from Democratic to Republican control. Mm. Now, the January 6th committee that you mentioned, that is a committee that was formed and is led by Democrats. There are only two Republicans on that committee. We would expect that the Republicans, should they take control, will will disband the committee altogether. Mm. It, it will no longer exist. Uh, and that would, you know, be one less thorn in Donald Trump's side uh, as he, you know, seeks to re-enter the main stage of American politics. Lauren, one final question I wanted to ask you was about a policy area. How prevalent has the discussion on crime been in these elections? Well, the Republican Party has really made crime a central uh, tenet of their message. I would say it's fair to say that if the economy is their number one issue that they're hammering home to voters, crime is number two. Um, And this is, uh, you know, a reflection of not only in urban areas where we have seen an increase in certain types of crime, particularly in the aftermath of the pandemic, uh, but also the concerns of of suburban voters, of people who live just outside of cities but are nevertheless still concerned about crime. Uh, The Republicans think that it's an effective an effective message for them. It's an effective issue for them. And the Democrats find themselves, you know, on the defense. They are trying to push back on a suggestion that they are, quote unquote, soft on crime. Um, You know, not that long ago, there were discussions about defunding the police and and what law enforcement should look like in major U.S. cities. And um, that's another tough one for Democrats to message as they try to, you know, make the case that they have they have a grip on these cities and that their their plan for uh, law and order and criminal justice is the right one. So, Lauren, those states we're to look out for on Tuesday night are Georgia, Nevada, Pennsylvania and Arizona. Is that is that right? Uh, on the Senate side. Now, that's not to say there wouldn't be some surprises. There are places like Ohio, which are very close, North Carolina, uh, even uh, Washington State. But, you know, I'm I'm testing everybody's <laughs> limits here with U.S. geography and also their willingness to uh, to stay up. But perhaps early morning uh, in Ireland, you'll you'll have a little bit of a better sense of of what the results are. Okay, well, no doubt, Lauren, you've got a very, very busy few days and a week ahead of you. But we really do appreciate the time you've taken to give us your insights. That's Lauren Feeder of the Financial Times in Washington. Lauren, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, that's all for this episode of Taking Stock. And while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're also available as a podcast first on Friday mornings on the News Talk app. If you want to get in contact with the show, you can email us as always at takingstock at newstalk.com. My thanks to all of today's guests and to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with Hugo De Silva on sound. Jonathan McRae is coming up next with Future Proof. And then it's Gavin Riley with On the Record and a review of all your Sunday newspapers. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thank you for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.